I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12 as we get into God's word together this morning. And you have some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as well and follow along. Um, You know, God saves us uh, from, not just so we can escape eternal consequences, although uh, we look forward to being able to be in heaven with him, but God wants to permeate the world with his gospel. And he wants to do that through his body, the body of Christ, that's us. Uh, God wants us to be his representatives in the world. Wherever we're at, in our neighborhood, uh, in our family, in our workplace, at school, God wants us to be, calls us to be witnesses in the world for him. You know, if, if I wanted to emphasize some kind of a lesson to my kids, uh, I would repeat it more than once. Five times, four times in the Gospels and once in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, he gives them the, the great commission. Five different ways five different contexts, the same message. He's sending them out into the world as he was sent. And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all the nations. That's the commission that he's given us. So what are we up against when we do that? Well, we we live in the world. We see billboards. We watch television and see ads and we know this crazy world we live in. It's, It's a hard world to penetrate with the gospel. Uh, John Stott, a great preacher, tells about a, a friend of his who was a social worker in, uh, in Nigeria. And he was visiting a young man on the back streets of Lagos, the capital, and what this social worker encountered, Stott says, is typical of the modern mood around the world. And when this social worker went into this young man's house, On his night table next to him was a Bible, uh, the Book of Common Prayer, a Quran, uh, three copies of the Watchtower, which is the magazine of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the biography of Karl Marx, a book of yoga exercises, and a popular paperback that he was reading called How to Stop Worrying. That's the world we live in. People want to take anything that might help and and they put it all together and mix it up and take a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, That, of course, is not what the Bible teaches. God desires his grace to flow from us, from heaven to us and then out to others. Uh, But the task is a huge one in our culture today. The first 11 chapters of the book of Romans uh, reveal God's righteous plan. Uh, So far in Romans, and you can look at this at the top of your outline, we've, uh, we've learned about the wrath of God, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We've seen God's faithfulness, and we've seen that God's ways are unsearchable, that he is a sovereign God. Uh, We have a role in this world to take grace 
that's come upon us out to others to communicate that. But the way we do that is through our lives. And so you have this on your outline. God wants an inward change to happen in our lives that produces a life change. Up to now, Paul's letter to the Romans has given us uh, uh, some very pivotal, very important moments in the life of a believer, of every believer. And the verse we're looking at this morning provides the third pivotal point, very important. So the first one you've got on your outline, the first one that happens the moment a person receives the gift of God's grace through faith, says Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty powerful, extremely powerful. And then the second pivotal moment is when each individual Christian understands that his or her eternal destiny is secure. Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then the third pivotal moment uh, when each, is when each believer is confronted with this compelling Paul, uh, call from Paul um, that gives, it's really a summary of all that we've read so far in Romans up through chapter 11. And then uh, it, it launches us into this great next section, the last section of the book of Romans. Um, and it, it, since we have it on the outline, let's read it aloud together right now. Uh, let's read it. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. So, the first verse is how we're to live in the world. Verse 1, Romans 12.1. Romans 12.2 tells us to take an inventory of what's going on in our mind. That's important. Um, so this is a passage like really all of Romans that I believe can nourish us wherever we are in our lives. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that this, these two verses will nourish each one of us wherever we're at uh, with the Lord. So I, I think it can be one of those benchmark passages. So the first thing we see, number one on your outline, is that the basis of our commitment is the mercies of God. That's the basis of our commitment. Paul states it very clearly. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So uh, <clears throat> what is God's mercy? Well, look at the outline at the top. Everything we've studied in chapters 1 through 11, Paul summarizes by talking about, he's saying that's, that's really God's mercy is what that's all about. Uh, so when we've read chapters 1 through 11, that's, that's a, that, that leads us to the call of commitment that he's asking us to make in Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
And we saw this explosion from Paul last week at the end of, of Romans chapter 11. You can look at that verse in your Bible, verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we talked last week about the connection between theology and doxology, between worship uh, and 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 well, between theology and worship, between learning about God and, and worshiping for who he is, but we need to add one to that. So you have this on your outline, uh, because there's a unity between theology, doxology, and practice, living it out. And this verse, these two verses are really hinged verses because all that's gone before in Romans 1 through 11 is theology that that's, leads us as Paul ends in, in chapter 11 with praise and worship. And then he opens it up in chapter 12 to practice and living it out. So as our understanding of God deepens, then our dedication should deepen in the same way. Um, when we look at Jesus' gift to us, it, the, what he's given us in, in our salvation and meditate on it, continue to take it to heart and uh, apply it to every area of our life, it becomes like a magnet that draws us into a deeper and deeper commitment to God. I love the way Isaac Watts puts it in his hymn. He says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So Paul calls chapters one through 11 the mercies of God. That's how he sums it up. Isaac Watts, his summary of it is love so amazing, so divine. I, I think both of those are great summaries. God's mercies, but also love so amazing, so divine. It's a great summary of Romans chapters one through 11. So Paul is not asking for some kind of a favor from us here. Um, he's stating a sense of duty that every Christian should feel. When he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So this is a call for us to reflect deeply and regularly about what Jesus has done and then follow with our commitment to him and living that out. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, we give all to him. So the next thing that we see in these verses is our commitment to Jesus, that it has two main characteristics. So number two, our commitment to Christ is total and reasonable. Our commitment to Christ is total and reasonable. Paul conveys the extent of our dedication by using language of sacrifice. That might make some of us a little uncomfortable because if you know anything about Old Testament sacrifices, you know that uh, it, it didn't end well for the, for the animal being sacrificed. Uh, they died. So really what we're talking about is our, is our death, dying to ourselves. Uh, so to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. So the Greek word to offer is the word that means, it was the Greeks would offer sacrifices to their gods. They were familiar with that. When it, when it mentions your bodies, he's talking about more than just our physical body. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, 
my life, my all. That's what it's talking about. He wants our lives. He wants our all. And the word sacrifice was, again, an Old Testament idea of a, of a burnt sacrifice that was totally consumed. That was the Old Testament idea that Paul had in mind here. So what's God saying? He's saying the sacrifice we make to him should be living. Uh, you know, it's, 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 we can be slippery. You know, we, our minds go so many different places. We can slip off that altar pretty easily. But we need to keep placing ourselves back on the altar. But our lives are to be described as living and holy and pleasing. So the Old Testament sacrifice, was, it was easy in a sense. You'd bring an animal, you'd give the animal, it was sacrificed, done, it was over. But here we're talking about a living sacrifice. And so we have the privilege, and it really is a privilege, of continually presenting ourselves before God so he can use us as he pleases. And we, how often do we do that? We do it every day. We do it every hour. We do it every moment of every hour. We continually do that. I'll give you an example where the, the body is being used as an instrument of righteousness and mercy in scripture where it's called a sacrifice. You don't have the reference on your outline, but it's Philippians chapter four, verse 18. And Paul says, I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So think about not just the gifts you give, but when you give the gift of your life, when you encourage other people, when you pour out your life, that is a gift that God uses that, as Paul says, is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Um, and so a, a, a Christian living is like that. But it's unlike the Old Testament in that we are living. We're still alive. It's an ongoing thing. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means that I am no longer going to decide what happens in my life. I, I'm, I can make plans. Uh, and that's okay to make plans. But we, we, we commit them to the Lord. We ask the Lord for his direction. So <clears throat> think of this. I read about a young American woman who was at a Christian conference in the 1930s. Uh, she was 16 years old. She was very moved by the messages that she heard, and she decided to make a, a commitment to a life of missionary service. She said it publicly, my heart is to go to Asia. And I think we'd look at that and we'd say, well, being a living sacrifice, for sure. Well, as a result of this conference, she wasn't the only one. There were many others <clears throat> that made commitments, uh, missionary to, to giving their lives to missions uh, for the Lord to use. But she stuck with it. She really uh, made this commitment and st stuck with it over the years. Keep in mind that in the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, a number of missionaries and Christians lost their lives in Asia because they were standing up for the Lord. So she was learning about these dangers, but she still wanted to go. So as a result of this conference, um, she decided to, to continue to pursue it. And even though she knew those things were going on, she would go to the agencies, they would say, all say the same thing. Number one, you have to get your Bible training, and you have to get your missionary training. Go into the, the, to know how to be a cross-cultural missionary. 
Um, but we've learned that culturally, the only way we, we can't send single women, we can only send you if you're married. So you need to get married. You need to find a husband. So while all of her friends were planning their lives, doing all sorts of neat things, she was determined. And she said, I'm, I'm going to go, Lord, but I just need one thing. I need you to provide a husband. She was confident that God would provide. She went through Bible school. No husband. She went through cross-cultural and missionary training. No husband. Not even a prospect. The night before her graduation from missionary training, she sat in her dorm room, an angry young woman. In her room, she struggled and she prayed. And she said, God, how could you do this to me? I have nothing else I can do. I have nowhere else to go. I've put everything into this. I've committed my whole life to you. And I only asked you to do one thing and you didn't do it. How could you do this to me? And as she was praying, she suddenly realized and understood that she wasn't miserable because she'd given God full control of her life. She was miserable because she'd never given God full control of her life. And what she was doing is putting God in her debt. She, had, she was recognized that in her mind, she had this idea of what a heroic Christian life would be. And she convinced herself that if she could live like that, she'd be a person of worth. And so what was happening is she was telling God, this is what you, God, have to do for me. The last I looked, that's not the way you talk to a king. She was putting God in her debt. She said, God, you've got to do this for me. In essence, she was climbing off the altar. It was a slippery thing, and she was off of it. And she began to realize that she'd never given God 100% control of her life. She was using God. She wasn't serving God. She was telling God what he had to do. And in the account I read of this, she said this, that night, for the first time, I stopped trying to control my life. I said, you know where I should go. You know what I should do, Lord. You know best. Wow, this young woman had spent all these years willing to say goodbye to everything, to fun, to safety, to comfort, to everything. She thought she had given everything over to the Lord. But that night she understood that in reality, she didn't want to completely give everything over to God. She had a tight fist about a husband. She wanted a husband. Are there areas in your life where you have a tight fist? Where you're saying, Lord, I'll give you all these other things, but not this one thing. I'm going to hold on to it. And Lord, you have to do this for me because look, I'm giving you everything else. This is the one thing you need to do for me. But that's not the way we speak to the Lord of the universe and the hope of the world. And when she finally did get this, she explained, she said, I knew God was infinitely wise and loving 
and I'll do everything, God, you tell me in your word, even if I don't feel like it. So this isn't a work that we do to make ourselves pleasing to God. This is a constant presenting of ourselves to our Lord and our Savior. Proverbs 19.1 says, There are many plans in a man's mind, but it is the Lord's purpose for him that will stand. So we have plans. We have plans for our lives. We have plans for our week, for our day. That's okay to have plans. But we commit them to the Lord, and we say, Lord, you lead me. You direct my steps. I give this day to you. And I think that some of us are, are tempted to say, and unbelievers, maybe some believers, are tempted to say, Lord, I, I, I trust the Bible, but I don't like what it says here, so I'm going to ignore that. Or I, I like all of these things about God, but I just can't accept this about God. If that's what you're doing, you're in control of your life. You're picking and choosing, and you still belong to yourself. You're, you're basically deciding how things are and how they should be. And if that's the case, you're not a living sacrifice. You're, you're assuming that you're wiser to God, and you're not. We are not wiser than God. And what does this mean? It means that God is infinitely good, and he's loving, and he's wise. And that means, and this is on your outline, that I have to accept what he brings into my life, and I have to trust him whether it makes sense to me or not. And there are things that will happen that just don't make sense. And you, you're tempted to say, why God? And, but we submit to him. We climb back on the altar and we say, Lord, I'm there. I want to put myself and leave myself on the altar. And what this young woman was saying to God is, if you do this for me, if you do this, I'll give you my life. She was saying, I'll obey you if. And on the other side of that if for her was a husband. What's on the other side of if for you? If there is one, there shouldn't be. But if there is, you've got to let that go. You open your hands and you say, okay, Lord, you take it. Whatever's on the other side of that if, if you're really not worshiping and sacrificing for, it's, 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 if, if it's something other than God, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping that thing. And then Paul says to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So the sacrifice is living, and it's holy. As believers, we're to be holy in that there's a continual putting away of sin, turning away from sin, and turning towards God, and living for him. And the more we do that, the more set apart for God we will be, the more holy we will be. Tim Keller said it like this, you will love Christ, think about this, you will love Christ and commit to him to the degree you see the depth of your own sin and the application of the cross to that sin being final. That is the good news. That's the gospel. Pleasing to God, not because we deserve to be accepted, but because we're obeying what God has asked us to do in his word. 
And in that sense, we're pleasing to God. And this applies to everyone across the board, to, to the youngest one here and to the oldest one here, to us in our retirement or to us in our, in our going to school, preschool, wherever it is, to our workday, our neighborhood. It applies to all of us, even to those in vocational Christian work. To everyone in the church, we are all called to 100% commitment. And then at the end of the verse, it says, this is your true and proper worship. Everybody worships something. Everybody lives for something. You have to. If you say you're living for your career and you're sacrificing for that, you know what eventually will happen? Is that your career will drive you into the ground. If you're living for someone or dating someone or even married to someone and you're living for them, Primarily, if that person dies or leaves you or rejects you, it'll mess you up. People think that they don't want to put themselves under bondage to God. They want to stay free from God. That is anything but freedom. The only freedom is to find yourself in God and who he is in Christ. Maybe you know someone who thinks that they're just completely independent. They're not bound to any person, to any religion. They just are living for themselves. I don't know if you've seen this. I, I, I heard about it and then I saw a, a video of it and heard a report about it. People marrying themselves. They actually, with somebody conducting the ceremony, say their vows into a mirror. That's the culture we live in. It's sad. And, but if you know people who are saying they're just living for themselves, there'll be a sacrifice on the altar of their own independence. Our commitment is to be total. It's to be true and proper as well. The Greek word for true and proper is actually the, the Greek word logikos, from which we get the word logical. So for Paul, true worship is logical using God's logic because it's in line with the correct understanding of, of who God is, the truth that, of, of him as it's revealed in Jesus. And so you have this on your outline. When you see God clearly and understand who he is, then nothing else makes sense but to offer God your body, yourself, as a living sacrifice. One commentator uh, said it like this. He said, the intelligent understanding of worship that is the worship which is in harmony with the truth of the gospel, is indeed nothing less than the offering of one's whole self in the course of one's concrete living, in one's inward thoughts and feelings and aspirations, but also in one's words and deeds. So this, he, he's, this commentator is saying there's no such thing as halfway commitment. Halfway commitment is no commitment at all. And we might be tempted to say something like, Lord, this is all yours except for this relationship. I'm gonna hold on tightly. It's, it's all yours except for this business deal I have that's going on. It's all yours except for this one thing that I know is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Those excuses are beyond spiritual logic. That's what Paul's saying. In God's world, these make no sense. And so if we're worshiping apart from a commitment to God, it's a false worship. 
We are deceiving ourselves if we're doing Christian things but are, are not consecrated in giving ourselves over to living for Christ. Sam Shoemaker said it so well, and this is on your outline. To be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus Christ as I know. I love that. The more I deepen my love for Jesus, the more I'm able to commit myself to him. And so having seen the basis and, com- and character of commitment in verse one, we now look at the demands of commitment in the first part of verse two. And there are two commands, uh, and the first one's negative, and then there's a positive one. The negative one, and this is on your outline, is don't conform to the world. That's the negative one. Don't conform to the world. Well, what, what does that mean? Don't conform to the pattern of the world. The word pattern comes from the Greek word schema, which means scheme, schema, that's where we get the word scheme. And the idea is that this passing age is dominated by Satan. He, it says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, is the God of this world and has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And so we could paraphrase Paul's words like this. Uh, We could say, don't be conformed to the schemes of this passing evil age. That's the world we live in. This doesn't mean we're supposed to write off the world completely. It it does mean that we need to be thinking biblically, thinking Christianly, if you were, about our culture, uh, about the world we live in. We need to filter what we take in through the filter of the word of God. That's why we need to know the word. A powerful book on this topic is The Christian Mind by Harry Blumeyers. It's on the outline. He was a student of C.S. Lewis and became a Christian through the ministry, through the teaching of, 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 of Lewis. Um, <clears throat> when I was a student at Wheaton College, the one book that every uh, faculty member had in common in, uh, in addition to the Bible was this book. And I remember thinking, wow, I need to read this book. It's a very good book on the Christian mind. But here's a quote from the book. He says this, uh, Bill Myers. He says, because secularism is in the saddle, that's the world we live in, it follows that the Christian mind is suspicious of fashionable current conformities. So we need to have this healthy suspicion about everything we learn in the world, everything. We need to filter it through the the filter of God's word. We need to have a a healthy skepticism about what the world says, not just accept it. We have to think biblically about what we read, about what we watch, and be unafraid to challenge people's presuppositions. To, To be unafraid to be different. That's what we're called to be as Christians. We're going to be different in the way we think, in the way we live. And then the positive command is do be transformed. You've got that on your outline. Do be transformed. And you can circle that word transformation or transformed in your Bible. That is the key word in in these two verses. The word transformation, transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the word transformation is, he's talking about, it's, the new birth, for example, is an event. Transformation is a process. It's not a one-time thing. 
And again, the language that Paul uses here is, is graphic. It's very alive. And, and the, the word transformed is literally the Greek word metamorphose, from which we get the word metamorphosis. Uh, the change from one form to another, when something changes. It's like the transformation from a tadpole to a, to a frog or a caterpillar to a butterfly. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if, uh, if you remember some way, you know, we've got some visitors from out of state and stuff, but some years ago we had uh, the migration of the monarch butterflies, which happens, but it was, I mean, we'd open our back door and we'd see dozens of butterf- monarch butterflies flying south to Mexico. I didn't even know they migrated like that, but they do. And it, it was really cool to experience it, especially one year. But butterflies are pretty incredible. But we could say that what happens to a Christian is similar to a caterpillar when it becomes a butterfly in the cocoon. The butterfly doesn't have to take flying lessons. Inside the cocoon, the old body disintegrates. And I don't know how this happens. This is God's incredible mind to do something like this. But inside the cocoon, the old body disintegrates and undergoes some kind of a a cellular reorganization. I just looked it up. Don't, I'm just the messenger. Don't persecute me here. But it's just amazing to think about this. And when it emerges from the cocoon at that point, it just flies naturally. It, it's, it's a butterfly. And at our conversion, it's like this. God, it's as if God releases something in our hearts that makes spiritual flight almost become second nature. Why? Because now we have the Holy Spirit living in our lives that can make a difference, that gives us the power to to transform, to change, to metamorphosize, if you will. And he's talking about a profound change that comes inside of you. It's the inner you. It's the message that that you're going to hear here on a Sunday morning. Because we believe that change is possible. We believe there's always hope. We believe there's always an opportunity for people to come to know Christ. You know, I've baptized children who are, I think, as young as about seven years old, and I've baptized uh, one lady who was 92 years old. That was when he, she committed her life to Christ. So uh, it's, it's for anybody. There's always hope. And then we get into God's word each week, as we do here. It exposes our mind to the truth and, and hopefully allows us to filter a little bit better what we're hearing from the world. And it allows us to... Uh, to, to, to our faith to grow. Faith grows by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We read in Romans chapter 10. And so this is the same word for transformation that's used in Matthew 17 when Jesus is transfigured before the disciples and his face lights up like the sun and his, his clothes shine like the light. And, and we get this glimpse of Jesus, just a glimpse of Jesus in his deity that he is indeed God the Son. And it's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3 when he talks about us. Listen to this. This is about you. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. That's our job in the world. That's our job in the church to reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How does this happen? We fill our minds with the Word of God. 
We submit to the spirit of God living in us who takes his word and, makes it, and renews our mind, makes it alive in us. And this is in the present tense, meaning that it's a process, it's gradual, it's an ongoing transformation. Every time, again, we say no to temptation, we say yes to God, it's a transformation of our minds. We're, we're becoming like Christ. How does this happen? Um, it, it, you know, God is not just after our obedience. He is after a whole new kind of obedience, an obedience that grows from a desire to know him, to know God, to know Christ. Though here's the caveat, and this is on your outline. This is a gradual transformation by the Holy Spirit that takes discipline on our part. It takes discipline on our part. The men this year at Claremont Emanuel have been talking about the habits of grace. Um, so we've, we've talked about the importance of personal Bible study and, and prayer and uh, evangelism and service and sacrifice and what fellowship is. And all of these things renew our, our thinking. They renew our minds and our hearts about this transformational change that we want to take place. One paraphrase, I read one paraphrase of, of Romans chapter 12, verse two, that I thought was good, a good summation, if you will, of what we've been talking about. Here's what it says. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. And then finally on your outline, number four, the result of the committed life is knowing God's will. You know, people often will come to me and they'll say, how can I know God's will for my life? I don't know, sometimes maybe they think it's gonna be a mystical experience. It's like they're waiting for God to speak to them in an audible voice or something. But knowing God's will happens as you expose your mind to the truth of God. And the result of that, Paul says, is that well, you will prove what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. So this final phrase shows, up, uh, shows us the impact that it will have on our lives. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. It's good, pleasing, and perfect will. So you have this on your outline. As we present ourselves to God as a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice, we'll allow his Holy Spirit more and more through his word to mold our wills to God's will. That's what God does as we study his word and live it out. And the idea of good here means that our wills should desire only what God desires and then to do it in the way that God wants it to be done. And in using the word pleasing here, Paul again is borrowing from the Old Testament sacrificial language to describe the kind of holy and godly living that God approves, that, that's morally and spiritually without blemish, if you will. 
A passage that's not on your outline, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have these promises of God's word, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So a transformed mind will produce a transformed will. We lay aside our plans, we submit to God and what he wants. First of all, from his word, that's number one. And we have the attitude that we're going to do it no matter what the cost. And all of this produces in us a desire to know him more deeply and more intimately. Transformation will make you mature. Transformation is what grows us up as Christians. We grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Peter prayed for the people he was writing to in 2 Peter 3. And all of this points us to lead a life of worship. Doing God's will means that God will shine through us. That's what we talked about at the beginning, right? Being a witness for him in the world. And so Jesus says, let your light so shine before the people around you that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the goal. That's what we're shooting for. And so we treasure God in all he is and and what he does through us in all of his ways. Our old self is dead and we offer our new selves. We dedicate our new selves as an offering, a living offering before him. We worship him with our life. So let me ask you this question. Is is it the world around you that's squeezing you into its mold? Or are you allowing God to remold you through his word to look like Jesus? Do you remember Sir Isaac Newton? Um, I know you didn't know him personally, but do you remember (laughs) who he was in history, right? So one of the things he's famous for is the law of motion. And the law of motion says this, everything continues in a state of rest until it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. So what forces are impressing on you? Is it primarily the world? Or is it primarily God through his word? So I'm gonna read that again, but that that law of motion, but think about that as it relates to you in your life, in your Christian life, living for Jesus. Everything continues in a state of rest until it is compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. This world has so many messages it gives us. And, and, and exposure to all of that can, can change our message and can change our values. We have a tendency to become like what we see and hear. So we need to have a, a, a habit of grace of opening the word and allowing God's word to speak to our hearts and lives. That's the balancing pressure, if you will, that we need to counter all that we get in the world. So what is it that's impressing in on you? Determine for it to be God and his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. We love you. Thank you, Lord, that as we refuse to 
allow the world to mold us into its image, that you are transforming our lives by renewing our minds and perfecting us into your image. Lord, please help us to surrender to the process so we can live out your perfect will in our lives. I know that somehow by a miracle of the Holy Spirit, you can take the seed of the word that's been sown this morning and you can draw people who don't know you to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that in the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Romans 15, the Apostle Paul writes, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace. Because you trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being here. And please don't leave without introducing yourself to the people that you're sitting around. Have a great day.